I found myself in Africa. I was working for Pricewaterhouse, so this amazing, huge consulting business. And I was really enjoying my time there because I was supporting uh, European companies that were either entering or expanding in the sub-Saharan region. So there was a lot of variety in terms of things I was exposed to. But I realized that I was just this uh, tiny piece in a gigantic organization. So I started to wonder, okay, what would be the next thing for me? What, what would be the environment that will make me happier in terms of experimenting and going fast. And that's when I met Korawad, the CEO of Amity, and he was studying at Columbia in New York, and he wanted to start this company. And that's really how it started. I jumped in this train and I was like, okay, this is really the opportunity for me to have a very big impact on something and owning, feeling that I'm building, contributing to build something. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the last episode, we spoke to Will Reynolds, founder of Sears Interactive. We talked about his journey as a founder and how he decided that from now on, he's going to grow the company only to benefit his employees and his community. Our guest today is Francesca Gargaglia, the COO and founder of Amity. Amity builds ready-to-use social features that companies can easily incorporate in their websites and apps to create their own communities. What's unique about Amity is that even though the company started very recently, just about a couple of years ago, it already has a very global feel. Amity employs over 250 employees and they are of 30 nationalities and it has offices in Thailand, Italy, the UK and the US. The company mirrors the personality and experience of Francesca. She's a relatively young funder, but she has already lived and worked in four continents. And in her experience between internships while she was in school and the few years that she worked before starting Amity, Francesca has worked for non-governmental organizations, a law firm and a large consulting firm. So we also talked about the blend of all those experiences equipped her to be a better CEO, even though she started early. We also talked about what it's like to be a woman and a leader working in countries that sometimes don't expect a woman to be the most senior person in the room. Enjoy. Let's start by introducing you to our listeners. So tell me a little bit who you are, what you're doing and sort of the journey that got you here. Absolutely. First, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. So I'm Francesca. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Ascala that is called Amity, is a company that we started in, uh, in Bangkok and London and uh, a few years ago at the end of 2019 and now is operating in various countries. Uh, uh, we are a tech company, so we build social networks. Maybe later on I will go a bit more into the detail of what we do, but probably the most uh, peculiar thing about myself is that actually my background is legal. I went to law school. So I'm from Italy, from a city, a town of the central part of Italy, Perugia, and I grew up there. I moved to Milan to attend university, and I had the chance during my years in school to do a lot of you know, international experiences because of exchange programs or different internships. So this made me very passionate about exploring uh, different countries. That's how, at some point, I ended up meeting these two guys from Thailand that were studying in the U.S. And they 
they just convinced me to start a company with them. <laughs> and that's how the journey began. You've lived in a lot of countries and a lot of countries that are not the traditional countries where Italians who go abroad go, because Italians tend to go to London, they go to the US, they go to Germany, they go to France. But you've lived in a lot of different countries. So what were some of the countries that you lived in and what was the driver to go to those different places? So I guess the first country where I had the opportunity to spend some time by myself, so the first time that I was far away from home, uh, was Brazil. Me spending a few months in Brazil was almost a coincidence because I got in touch with the student association during my first year in uh, in university, and they were offering these uh, opportunities to volunteer abroad. So I, I decided to apply for the program. I was selected, and I was randomly assigned to this project in Brazil, in a, a region called Bahia. So I was in Salvador, so the northern and a bit more black, multicultural part of Brazil. And that experience really changed everything for me because it gave me, I really realized that I'm passionate about culture differences and culture crashes. So when I land in a place that I don't know and is very far from my own culture, very you know far from what I can imagine or I was exposed to uh, growing up, I really feel energized and I feel that I just want to go around and explore and learn. So that made me realize that I wanted to do this more and more often. So since that first experience, I tried to uh, really uh, take every chance around me to spend some time in uh, developing countries, in countries, you know, very far away from Europe. This led me to Indonesia for some time. And then thanks to my consulting job, so the first job that I had when I finished university, I ended up in Africa. <laughs> so I was in South Africa for more than two years, two years and a half. And also that gave me, you know, the opportunity to explore a lot, a continent that is a bit, probably a bit off the beaten path, right? The other thing that I noticed is that you have a very interesting blend of professional experiences because you have, you know, on one hand, the traditional big consulting firm, but on the other hand, you also had a lot of nonprofit and sort of government because you work for governmental entities. How do you think that the seeing the two sides of the world, if you will, the private big consulting firm and then operating in government type entities or non-for-profit shaped you as a, as a leader, as a manager, as you start thinking about how to build your own business? It contributed a lot. And the way I see things and the way... So first, it gave me a bit of perspective. So having been exposed to very different frameworks and processes and just uh, different ways of approaching the same problem, sometimes I am more mindful of taking into account a lot of different points of views. So I like to have teams that are very diverse and I like to experimenting different approaches to tackle the same issue, for example. So this is something that I am I'm very proud of my mixed, let's say, my, the, the variety of the experiences in my in my background, in my career, because I, I think it gives me a bit of a unique take, a unique uh, flavor, which is not that common to find. So I have many of my colleagues are very, you know, experienced and they're amazing in what they do, but they have always been exposed pretty much to the same type of environment, right? So yeah, I think it made me more open to really 
taking into account all these different pieces. A lot of people think that the government should learn from the private sector. I am wondering, what are one or two lessons that you took from working in governmental entities that you actually apply to your private work? So just to go back to the sentence that you were quoting, I fully agree on the fact that the government should learn from the private sector, but I also think that corporates should learn from startups. So it's a never-ending, let's say, cycle. Okay, so for sure, what I appreciate about public entities is that uh, sometimes there is less pressure in terms of delivering within certain, uh, you know, hard timeline. And this, from the one end, can result into, you know, lower productivity, but from the other end can result also in more time to actually go deep on things and really and really research and really learn, really uh, try to understand the, the problem that the entity, the organization is trying to solve. This is something that I found very often, for example, in uh, when I was volunteering in this Brazilian NGO or when I was exposed to a lot of uh, uh, not-for-profit associations in Indonesia, in Thailand, people were extremely knowledgeable about the field they were working on and they were extremely passionate. And this is something that is likely more, you know, uncommon in the corporate world. So the elements of having being experts and being passionate about the field that you are practicing, it's something that is not that common in an international law firm, for example. You are a bit more horizontal, you are, you know, a bit more passionate of the career path that you are trying to build rather than really the, the things that you deal with every day. So probably this is something that we could try to change a bit. And I think startups are doing that somehow. You mentioned you'd studied law, but you didn't practice a lot of law, right? Not for a long time. How do you think that having gone to law school has helped you becoming sort of the leader that you are? Huh, this is a tough one. I never thought about it. So for sure, it helped me a lot in uh, doing my job. And the reason is because if I look at the standard, uh, the typical profile of startup co-founder or founder, uh, most of the People are, uh, have a tech background, uh, which is great. Uh, so they are able to, you know, visualize and build these incredible products. My two co-founders are, you know, college dropouts, for example. And this is uh, sometimes meaning that they lack the, you know, very traditional training that I had to uh, undergo. And all that hours of having, for example, more senior people proofreading every single email that I was writing. So, you know, it gave me a very strong framework in terms of how to name documents, how to organize an email inbox, how to structure a complex workflow. So it made me for sure more able to be a team manager and design processes that are a bit more structured for the people around me. So I would say this is the biggest impact. If somebody looks at the path that you got on after you graduated, NGOs, big consultant, one would not have said, well, this is somebody who's going to end up as a tech startup founder. How did you realize that you wanted to be in a more of an entrepreneurial role? And, and what was that moment like for you? Okay, so let's start from the fact that I have always been extremely curious. 
so all my decision making uh, uh, usually is is uh, driven by curiosity right so wanting to experiment a bit of everything and really understand what's the right context for me to add value so this is what dictated you know the choices i made in the first years of my career and then i found myself in africa i was working for pricewaterhouse so this uh, amazing huge uh, consulting business and i was really enjoying my time there because I was supporting uh, European companies that were either entering or expanding in the sub-Saharan region. So there was a lot of, you know, variety in terms of things I was exposed to. But I realized that I was just this uh, tiny piece in a gigantic organization. And even if I had a lot of ideas and a lot of energy in terms of wanting to change things and uh, maybe innovate around me, I mean, my impact was always going to be extremely limited. And I remember that one day I was part of this group in PwC that is called the Millennial Africa Council. So they selected this bunch of millennial in the firm to try to bring new projects. And this was extremely cool on paper. But we realized very soon that our impact was going to be extremely limited because the organization is so big that by the time, you know, one of your idea actually reaches the stage in which can be implemented maybe this becomes, you know, a, a global policy. I mean, it can take years, it can take a decade. And this was like, wow, like, this is just not the speed at which my brain and energy and curiosity operates. So I started to wonder, okay, what would be the next thing for me? What, what would be the environment that will make me happier in terms of experimenting and going fast? And that's when almost by coincidence, I, I met Korawad, which is the, the CEO of Amity. And he was uh, studying at Columbia in New York, and he wanted to start this company. And that's really how it started. So I, I jumped in this train and I was like, okay, this is really the opportunity for me to have a very big impact on something and, uh, and owning, feeling that I'm building, contributing to build something. The company is in four places in the world, right? It was started in Bangkok, you mentioned, is that correct? It is correct. And were you all in Bangkok when it started or were you working remotely or? Karawad was in the U.S. with the other co-founder. So they were both living in New York and I, I was in Africa. So when we made the decision to start the business, Karawad and David, they went back to Bangkok because we realized, uh, you know, since day one, that the product was very tech heavy. So Bangkok just made a lot of sense because it's uh, cheaper and also Karawad is from there. So he had connections that we could leverage. So they made the decision to go back and uh, I joined it a bit later. So it took some months for me to, <laughs> to be fully convinced to leave my job and join them. But yes, eventually after six, seven months, I moved to Bangkok for the first time and uh, we, we were there for years. So that's where the company started. And after that, you know, the business started to expand. So we decided to open different offices in the world. So we have now an office in Milan, one in London and like one in the States. So that's when my life became a bit more about jumping around and, and hoping on different, you know, planes to make sure that I, I am exposed to all our teams. You joined the company at the first stage, I imagine it was still pretty small. How did you start thinking about the culture? that you wanted to set and the type of company that you wanted to build? How was that process like? I'm going to be very honest with you. At the beginning, we really didn't think about that. 
And the reason is because in a startup journey, there are some numbers that are considered by everyone as uh, tipping points in the process, in the growth curve of a company, which usually are 40 and 150. So like a company changes a lot when it reaches, you know, 40 employees. And again, when it reaches 150. So before 40, you're really a group of friends. So you don't even really ask yourself other than, okay, having a clear idea of what's your mission as a business. But we didn't spend too much time on really thinking, okay, what are our values? What are the culture that we want to build? Because we were really hiring, uh, starting from our networks. And there was this process of getting exposed to friends or friends of friends. And then it kind of naturally grew organically in having this group of passionate people that, that wanted to change the world of social networking. But when we started to grow and we you know, surpassed 100 employees, this became a problem because it's impossible to have the same type of personal relationships with everyone. And because we started to hire in different countries and, you know, people were coming without any previous exposure to the company, to, you know, the founding team. And this became one of the major focus for us as a management team. So in the last year, we spent a lot of time in uh, really designing our values, our culture, investing in our people. So we came up with this uh, new core value, which is Be Fierce, and is actually just an acronym for a bunch of different words that really represent how we want to be perceived as a team. And we started from crystallizing that uh, to then making sure that these values are embodied in everything we do. And this, you know, it's, it includes a lot of different activities, right? From, you know, having T-shirts and posters around the office uh, to starting every meeting thinking, okay, are we being true to ourselves? Are we being true to our values and our core beliefs? It's been a very interesting journey. I think that there is still a lot to do. We recently hired a new amazing head of people which for sure will play, you know, a big role in making this even uh, uh, more core to the type of companies that we want to build. What are some of the values? You, you mentioned the acronym, but what are some of the core values? Working as a team, uh, being enterprising, uh, being resilient, having courage. So the concept is really about, you know, when we decided how to, we were trying to find a name for the company and uh, we ended up picking Amity. So Amity is a common English word. So we really wanted something that you can find on the dictionary. And then we, we found Amity and we were like, oh, this, you know, it's perfect because it means friendship. And eventually this is the way we want to be perceived. And this is the way we want to treat our people, our partner. We want to treat everybody as it's a good friend. So that's also, this is also, you know, embedded in the type of culture that we want to build. So we say that our culture is all about freedom with responsibility. So making sure that people are not micromanaged, that have the freedom to express themselves, to think, uh, to come up with their innovative solutions on how to solve problems, at the same time that they are accountable for delivering the results that, you know, they commit to. So that's probably the two main pillars of Amity. When you started the company, what was your measure of success for the company? I think everybody had a different one, probably. We have always been very ambitious. This is for sure from day one. 
we have never, you know, we never started the company with the goal of, okay, let's try to get to a 2 million valuation and get acquired or uh, let's try to, you know, find a way to, to make an exit fast. The goal for us has always been, oh, we want to build this product. We want to have an impact. We want to change the world. So we have always been dreaming very big. So I think that the measure of success for us at the beginning, the first KPI was seeing our product in use and seeing the impact that was having on the life of people. So that for us was the first you know, moment of, okay, we are proud of what we are building because we sell technology. And when we saw for the first time that technology being used for you know, developing products that were having an impact on people's lives, we understood that we, are, we all love what we do and that's what we want to keep doing. So that's probably the measure of success, the amount of people that we can impact with the product that we are building. And how do you measure success on a personal basis? Wow, this is a good question. I never thought about that. Probably in terms of happiness, satisfaction. So I like the idea of you know going to bed every evening and thinking that I'm satisfied with the way I spend the day with what I did during my work life, my work day. So I think I measure success in terms of personal fulfillment and satisfaction. And and a big part of that for myself, it's really never stop learning. So I'm always on a learning journey and I love to uh, learn something new at least every quarter. So when I look back, I, I want to see that there is, you know, a growth curve and that I'm evolving as a human being and also as a leader. So probably this journey is my personal definition of success. I want to move back to a slightly different topic and a conversation I had with another one of my guests who's also an Italian founder and a woman. And she talked about how some of the challenges that she faced as a young woman and CEO in Italy, which is a slightly different culture than the rest of the world, but Italy is not a single culture from that standpoint. So what are some of the challenges that you face and how have you overcome them? Okay, this is a very hot topic, right? So, uh, you know, like tech is a industry where gender equality is still very far away in the horizon. So, of course, I'm very used to being the only woman in the room and often also the youngest person in the room. So it's a very complex issue to tackle. But I think that for me, of course, it made, in some instances, it, it made my growth path harder because I found myself in many situations uh, uh, where just being a woman came with the natural assumption that I didn't have the right to sit at the table. So particularly in many of the cultures where I worked, like Japan or Africa, it's really not that common to see women that are participating to important business meetings or, or really being part of the conversation. So I, for example, I remember a few almost funny like episodes where mine was the only female name in, uh, in the list of attendees to a meeting and everybody assumed that I was, you know, our CEO's PA <laughs> and they put my chair quite far away from the main table. So this, of course, it's a fact. We, we have to work as women to team up and to work all together to really try to, to change this somehow. But on the other end, and this is something that I like to stress because it's another fact, particularly because often I am the only woman, this really made me more eager to prove myself and to keep pushing. So it really motivated me to do better. And it 
opened for me many opportunities to be more more vocal and more visible in a way that probably wasn't really available for male in my role. So you talked about you know your role as a woman and and as a leader of the company, and I'm wondering how you think of yourself as a leader and what type of leader do you aspire to be? I never thought about this, actually. So I, I know for sure that I love leading by example. So there are a lot of different types of leaders like out there. And, and you know, I'm very passionate about studying and, and learning new models every day. Uh, but I'm not just trying to copy a framework or copy the leadership style of someone else. I'm just trying to be myself. And this is based, I guess, the way I like to lead is based in two pillars. The, the, the first one is being fair. So always really trying to deeply understand the situation around me or the problem that someone in, is posing to me. And I want to do my best to take into account all the possible standpoints. And the second pillar is really treating everybody with empathy. So I think that I used to think that leadership is about being the best. It's very common in you know the Western framework school system, the way we are raised to naturally think that to be a leader, you need to be the smartest person in the room or the best uh, at doing you know at sports or you know in school. So for a long time, I thought that it was what leadership was about being the smartest person. But then I realized that it was actually a very big misconception because being a good leader is about enabling people to thrive, to shine. So you are really uh, the, the, the secret sauce that puts the team together. And that's how I want to think about myself. I am an enabler. I love the fact that you said that you want to be the secret sauce that puts the team together because it ties into my next question, which is Amity went very quickly to how many employees do you have right now? Roughly 250, right? Yeah, 250. Okay, so you had to grow that team very pretty quickly and you had to go from here's a small team of leaders to building a larger team. And prior to that, you had never had an experience leading a large team. So how do you think about building your team and what were the expectations and the traits that you were looking for in the people that were going to be part of sort of your leadership team? You know, it's something that I spent a lot of time in trying to understand because as you correctly said, we, we started to grow very fast. And I guess that for me, it's all about attitude. What, what do I mean is like we reached that point in the stage in our growth where the attitude of our people is starting to be, you know, as important as the skills and experience that they bring to the table, that they bring to the, to the company. And the reason is because when we hire, we need to hire based on potential because a person might be on paper the perfect fit to take a role in the company today. But we know that the company is growing so fast that in six months, that role might be dramatically different in terms of, of scope and, and set of responsibility than what is it today. So the big question is, okay, it might be perfect today, but will it be perfect for this role in six months and in a year? So, so the question is, will this person grow fast enough? So I really look into a set of soft skills and again, uh, the first one is having a growth mindset 
and uh, not feeling, you know, uncomfortable when you don't have all the right replies, but actually feeling challenged because uh, you want to to learn and to find a solution, right, to, to what you don't know yet. So the second is for sure ownership and accountability. So everybody in the company, no matter, like we don't like to micromanage people. So no matter really what role you are in and what's your seniority, you are the, the owner of a piece of the cake. And you need to be comfortable be, with being accountable for that, right? So these are really the, probably the main traits that I try to find on people, the willingness to grow and the willingness to be accountable. And if there are these two fundamental basis, all the rest can be built on, on top of that. Earlier, you said that Amity is a mission-based company. So let's talk about Amity and what's the mission? We are on a mission to create positive digital experiences and communities. Uh, what does it mean is that we believe that in the last 10 years, uh, all the time that as users we spend online has been pretty much monopolized by giant social media companies, right? So they currently own a gigantic stake of all the time that we spend on apps, on websites. And this, of course, came with a lot of benefits in terms of connectivity and accessibility of information and people around the world. But it also translate into a lot of cons when it comes to the safety, the quality of the time that we spend online. So these companies owns every single piece of, of data uh, concerning to, to us, to what we like, to what we look, how we like to connect, right? And this is a, a very big power that you, you can exercise on people. So also, Every time that we are, for example, using TikTok or Facebook, we see a lot of ads. We see a lot of, you know, all these inputs that are very often are requested. So there is, a, there was a very popular documentary on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if you watched it. It's called The Social Dilemma. And there is this uh, statement that is very strong. That is, uh, you know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, which is uh, very true. So we are the product. And this is what Amit is trying to challenge. So we, we want to give to everybody around the world, companies, associations, NGOs, schools, uh, the ability from a technology point of view to build engaging digital communities. So we want every organization out there to be able to operate an app, a website, a digital platform that is as engaging and as high quality of a mini Facebook or, you know, a mini TikTok or Twitter. So we like to say that we are really democratizing social networking and we are allowing everybody to operate a niche, positive social network where there is a, a very high control in terms of quality of the experience and the journey that you are giving to the community. And also you can play a big role in making sure that that experience is curated and protected. So this is what Amity is about. We are all very passionate about making this accessible and a bit breaking this uh, social media monopoly. So if people want to learn more about what Amity does or want to find you, what are a couple of links that they could go to? Oh, they can for sure uh, start from our website, www.amity.co. There are a lot of information there. There are also various links 
to contact us directly. So there are email addresses and we also have a LinkedIn page where we are very active. We post a lot of contents, articles, really to try to shed light on what we do and how companies around the world are using our technology to connect. Fabulous. So I'm going to shift a little bit to the personal. What is a passion that you have or a hobby outside of work that maybe has also helped you in your work life? Well, I love traveling. (laughs) This is something that has always been one of my biggest passions. Every time I have a second, I have some time that I can, uh, I just jump on on a plane and try to visit a new place. I particularly like exploring and experiencing countries that are very far from my own culture. And this is because I like to say that I'm passionate about culture crushes. So when I experience something that I never imagined before or or I experienced before on my skin, that's why, for example, I decided years ago to go and live in Africa and like travel in South America. So this has helped me, I think, incredibly in my work life because I, you know, at Amity, we are a very diverse company. We have more than uh, 27 different nationalities in our team. And our Bangkok office in particular, which is the biggest one, is so multicultural and diverse. uh, And this respect and curiosity and really willingness uh, to be such a change maker in bringing people together, it's for sure, uh, on a personal level, uh, really was driven by this passion and and all the things that I had the privilege to learn while traveling the world. That's great. Now we get to my favorite question in the podcast. What is a business expression or cliche or jargon that drives you crazy? First one that comes to my mind is for sure hyper growth. (laughs) The the reason why is because uh, this expression is really an obsession in the tech industry. Everybody is obsessed with hyper growth, with growing as fast as possible, and is one of the favorite words of venture capitalists, investors, when you're trying to raise money. It's like, hey, are you in a hyper growth curve? And everybody seems to consider, you know, this hyper growth path, uh, the goal when you're starting a new company. And I think it's starting to be a bit too much because it completely moved away the interest of the the industry from what you are building or what problem you are solving. It swift into being uh, how fast you're going. And and for me, it's fundamentally wrong. So That's a great answer. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose either a food for the body, like a dish or a drink that is very special to you. Or uh, if you go the soul route, a book, a piece of music or a movie, a piece of art, theater, or something that you really love that you go to? Okay, great question. So I really love the food for the soul part, but being Italian and being a foodie, I will go with food for the body. I mean, I love eating, honestly. So there are so many dishes that I cook regularly and almost all of them, you know, it's Italian cuisine. But if I can pick one thing, it's for sure mozzarella. Everybody makes fun of me because I have a real (laughs) obsession for mozzarella. And eating a mozzarella is literally the first thing I do every time that I land back in Italy after spending a few months abroad. So that's probably my guilty pleasure together with wine. 
And that's, uh, yeah, a great part of my identity. That's fantastic. Francesca, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode when they get released. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Don't forget to stay tuned through the credits because at the end I will play another song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best singer-songwriters. You can find more information about Francesca and Amity on the page of the podcast website at al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com and please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Look for the handle at al4edp with the letter D. On Facebook, follow us at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Wilmes on bass. And by the way, I am very excited to share that as a member of the North Mississippi All-Stars, Jesse Williams is nominated for a Grammy this year. And now, Wild Irish Moon by Susan Cattaneo. Enjoy. day come fast never meant to last some love is just like that lights up like a candle blows out like a match it was a smile that came out of nowhere a joy my heart had never known Slice of the day, stop along the way But I'll never be the same Like a wild Irish moon Gone too soon, gone too soon Rises up in a velvet sky Then slips below the cloud line Waving goodbye, saying don't you cry We had our time to shine It was ours for a moment But it wasn't ours to keep Just a snapshot to remember Oh,
Gone too soon, gone too soon. Rises up in a velvet sky, then slips below the cloud line, waving goodbye. And I won't cry. We had our time to shine. We had our time to shine. We had our time.